Sustainability, though, is broader because the word sustainability is also about community and social impact. So one could say that environmental sustainability and social sustainability go hand in hand. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Hey everybody, this is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Krisa, please go ahead. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you for having me on your podcast. My name is Krisa Pegitsas. I'm based in Washington, D.C., but consider myself a global citizen, um, somebody who cares very passionately about what's going on in the world with a specific focus on sustainability. For the last 20 plus years, I've worked at the intersection of sustainability and business and really driving outcomes. How do we create a better world? How do we do that for developed countries and emerging markets? And how do we do it in a way that makes a difference for everyone? Mm. I, I'm really delighted to have you as, as a guest because the book you wrote actually was my, is my kind of Bible, you know, in terms <laughs> of, um, I mean, the listeners know by now probably that. I think a little bit more than a year now, you know, I changed my my uh, title within my organization from executive vice president to chief sustainability and impact officer. And, um, and of course, you know, like you, I've always worked. Sustainability was important, especially in relation to the sustainable development goals. Um, but with the change of the title, I also felt, OK, I need to do some more work. And and your book was the first book I read. So so I'm. I'm I'm yeah thrilled to to have you here. Um, but before we go, you know, and talk about the book, tell us tell us a bit about you know where did you grow up? Because you're saying you know you're global citizen. So where did you grow up? Where did you live? And how ultimately did you end up where you are today? Well, Maurice, I am uh, the proud daughter of two Greek immigrants. Mm-hmm. They came over from Greece in their mid twenties to study. Uh, graduate school programs in the United States and in Canada. And so I actually was born in Canada Mm -hmm. and was a Greek Canadian citizen up until I was 17. Um, We moved to Boston, which is where I spent most of my childhood. um, And I eventually became a U.S. citizen at 18. Um, So Boston is my hometown, Mm -hmm. but I've spent a lot of time in Greece visiting family Um, and then living overseas and working overseas. So um, I've studied in Spain for a year. I worked in the Netherlands for a year. Um, I've visited the Philippines and Jordan, working on energy projects, Mm. um, and have really had the pleasure of being able to work with people in Latin America um, and Europe. So I, I consider myself someone who is, while Greek American Canadian mm-hmm. <laughs> is someone who has had um, the pleasure, the opportunity, the luck um, to be able to work with many people around the world. And and how do you think you know living in all those different places, being a, a daughter of migrants, and mm-hmm. and you know how did that ultimately in, inform or you know form you, you know led to to this path of of sustainability. Uh, and in business. So it's it's interesting and I've done some thinking about this because mm-hmm. I will say that sustainability was not a passion from 5 years old or even mm-hmm. 15 years old. Um you know, my parents were the first in their families to go to college in Greece. Um coming over to the United States and Canada to do the master's program and then eventually PhDs was a huge leap for our family. Um So I would say first and foremost, the value of education was something that was instilled in me very early on. Um, But as a family also with very little financial means, no political connections, you know, no no big network to draw on, um, 
my background also informed me that you know where you live matters having a stable home matters having um you know parents that care about your education and your food and where you um learn really matters so interestingly when i started my career in 2000 I actually started my career thinking I just wanted to live overseas and work in a place where I could have some sort of impact. I didn't even know what that meant, to be quite honest. Um, but I realized quickly when I landed at a large consulting firm in energy, wasn't exactly my main focus, but I quickly learned that energy efficiency and sustainability is where I could have impact. Why is that? Because when we think about energy and energy costs, it's money that low-income families are paying, meaning it's money that they could be spending towards education and their home and their food. So I say, Maurice, it wasn't a clear linear dot-to-dot -dot no, connection, no. but what's emerged over then the 20 plus years is that by working in energy efficiency, sustainability, green building, and green financing, it interestingly connects to the child I was and the family I was where every dollar mattered. Um, every dollar mattered because it could be used for something other than the electricity bill. Um, it could be used for our education and our transportation and our food. Mm. No, th yeah, thank, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I do want to go to the book though, and because I'm really enthusiastic about the book and I think it's an important uh, book. Um, you know, how, yeah, what made you ultimately to to write a book? And and for the for the listeners, it's it's a book where you've interviewed, I don't know exactly the number, but a lot of uh, different chief uh, sustainability officers of, of different companies mm -hmm. um, with whom you talked for an hour. I mean, a similar time that we've set aside to talk with each other as well. So yeah, how, how did that come about? So, you know, the career that I had um, followed sustainability in business from, from its early origins, meaning in 2000, 2003, 2004, we didn't have chief sustainability officers. Um, it only started happening probably in the last 10 or so years. But my work, I mentioned, Marie, started in the energy sector, working for large utilities in the U.S. and Europe. Then I moved into energy efficiency and renewable energy, and then eventually into green building, and then eventually into green financing for green buildings at Fannie Mae. This was in 2010. The book's genesis was that after building a green bond business there and being the head of ESG at Fannie Mae for over 10 years, I realized that to do this job, being chief sustainability and head of ESG, you needed different skills. You needed skills that certainly you can consider as executive skills and senior leadership skills, but there were more nuances. Mm -hmm. And because this was a new field and because I had spent so much time in it, I realized I wanted to tell not just my story, but really the story of 25 other chief sustainability officers and heads of ESG. The questions, Maurice, are really about the how. How do you grow a sustainability strategy? How do you integrate it into the business? How do you influence peers who are new to this space but are steeped in return on investment and IRR and other financial terms and are not as steeped into uh, carbon and biodiversity and other issues that require a technical language. So the genesis, Maurice, really was about answering some really important how questions. How do you lead uh, at the intersection of sustainability um, and business? Before I ask you about you know, what, what you kind of found in terms of how most of the chief sustainability officers lead, um, you know, not all our listeners are you know, similar backgrounds. So can you help us with, you know, how would you define sustainability and how is that different or similar to ESG? And and ESG, what is it actually? I mean, I so so also for, for the listeners. Sure, <laughs> sure. So sustainability is uh, 
broadly defined as reducing your impact on the environment. And impact means reducing your use of natural resources like water, energy, land use. It means making sure that the biodiversity is maintained. So making sure that plants and animals don't go extinct. Sustainability though is broader because the word sustainability is also about community and social impact. So one could say that environmental sustainability and social sustainability go hand in hand. So sustainability is how do we impact the environment and how do we also grow and maintain a healthy society? ESG is something a little bit different, but closely related. ESG is environmental social governance, ESG. And that term has come about as a result of the entrance of financial institutions, investors in particular, who are looking for a specific framework to measure environmental risk, as well as social risk, as well as governance risk. So as you can see, they're very closely related, but a lens is a little bit different, which is that it's about risk management first, but ultimately when you manage risk, you actually have a positive, sustainable impact. And um, thanks for that, uh, Krista. And why, why do you think because I've I've attended you know a number of of sustainability and ESG related events, and what seems it seems that you know in the US ESG is really controversial. While well, mm -hmm. I, I don't know the, about the rest of the world, but definitely in the West, it's part of you know what you, business you have to address yeah. it. Yeah. Um, having said that, though, I mean in the US, um, I've heard the chief uh, sustainability officer said. Well, basically, it's not a matter if if you have to do it, we have to do it. So even though it's controversial, we have to do it. Can you maybe explain a little bit about, about that? Sure. In the United States, there have been um, politicians as well as business leaders who have um, stated that they are anti-ESG, so against ESG. And so what they're saying is that the, the risk factors that companies, investors, financial institutions are now taking into account don't matter. Essentially, that's the translation. But I would argue, Maurice, that perhaps they need to look at it in a different light. Businesses, whether for-profit businesses or nonprofit organizations, ultimately are responsible for the long-term viability of their business, right? No, no business goes into business to be around only for two years. No CEO says, I'm only here for a five-year tenure, and mm -hmm. then I'm going to shut down the business, right? All businesses, organizations expect to be around for the long term. So when I hear the anti-ESG commentary, the, 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 the counter commentary that I have is mm -hmm. managing environmental, social, and governance risk is good business. Mm -hmm. It means that businesses will be around to generate jobs to provide benefits, will be there in order to create the value that we're looking for as a society and as uh, investors, as people who are depending on retirement funds, as people who are looking to support our children's education through wealth generation of our investments. So the, the, the momentum here around anti-ESG um, certainly has increased. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing about two years ago. Mm -hmm. What I'm anticipating is that um, what I'm anticipating and hoping and engaging in is the conversations that show that ESG is actually good business. It's good risk management. Okay. Um, let, let us go back to the question in terms of, because that's what you, I think, you know, you try to do with the book is how do the chief sustainability officers lead, right, yes. in, in their companies? What did you find? <laughs> well, there's no one... I mean, without giving everything well, away, right? Because we well, want people no, to read I'm, the book. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, one, I am glad that the book found you or you mm -hmm. found the book, Maurice, because yeah. you are exactly the person the book is meant for. Mm -hmm. You're 
the book is meant for people trying to figure out where to begin. And they're trying to look for a landscape of how to implement sustainability at their organization. As you mentioned, Maurice, there's uh, a number of people in the book. There's actually 25 people that I interviewed from 24 companies. So mm -hmm. with BlackRock, I interviewed two people. But it's intentional to be a broad set of companies from BlackRock to mm -hmm. Procter & Gamble to Anheuser-Busch to Cognizant to JP Morgan and more. The pillars of how to be good at sustainability are actually known. And we can talk about what those are. Mm -hmm. But how do I, as an individual leader, implement them successfully is unknown. Where I'm going with this is to, to do a successful sustainability strategy, you need to know your material issues. What are the core issues of your business? You need to measure your progress against those key issues. You need to be able to then have projects that deliver those results. Fine. But how you lead, Maurice, in your seat and how your listeners might lead as a leader in sustainability or somebody trying to figure it out is challenging. You need to influence the CFO without having any direct revenue or expenses that you as the chief sustainability officer control. You have a huge variety of stakeholders from customers to the regulator to the investor. You need to influence all of those and you need to be able to make progress in your conversations with them that's meaningful so you don't are called as greenwashing. You need to engage with the board. You need to engage with employees. It's quite a complex leadership role, and there was no book in the market um, that talked about how do you lead in sustainability. And, and, you know, for, for the other chief sustainability people out there, it is really a good book. Uh, you know, I, I use it um, together with another uh, a book, and that's the Three Horizon Framework. And, and you know, we will talk about it right. uh, in other uh, podcast episodes. So, you know, um, you talked about the pillars. So what are those the pillars? You know? Sure. Yeah. So. So I mentioned material issues. You, mm -hmm. you need to understand the priorities. That's what I call them. Material yeah. issues is a fancy term, but a term that all of us understand is what are the priorities for your business? Mm -hmm. So for Emma Stewart, for example, who's the sustainability officer at Netflix and who mm -hmm. I interviewed in my book, yeah. the priorities for her is energy. Why energy? Mm -hmm. Energy management is important because lighting is used to light up the sets that Netflix um, uses to film all of its productions. They use vehicles in order to move actors from one place to another. So energy is an important material issue or priority for Netflix. In contrast, for somebody like uh, Coca-Cola or Anheuser-Busch, who I interviewed their chief sustainability officers, water is the key issue, right? So you need to understand the material issues and the priorities. The second part of the pillars is making sure that you actually have some process changes and product changes. So you know energy is your priority, you know water is, you need to make sure that then you're then implementing new products and processes to change those. And then the last piece is, is you need to measure. You absolutely need to understand your progress. How are you actually going to understand that you made any type of measurement decreases or water decreases or water usage decreases unless you measure? So those key pillars, Maurice, are so critical when developing a sustainability strategy. Okay. Um, you know, you, you wrote a book in 2022, right? Mm -hmm. uh, February, if I'm not mistaken. At least, you know, the, the introduction yeah. chapter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the world is changing rapidly. Mm -hmm. If you would have written the book, you know, today, would the book have been different? The book would have been different. Mm -hmm. So I started writing the book in um, March of 2021. 
you know, the book was, you know, we were in the middle of the pandemic and we were absolutely um, as sustainability leaders, as business leaders, as humans um, trying to understand what the pandemic meant. What I would have done. So I asked questions of some of the chief sustainability officers, you know, what has COVID meant to them? What has it meant to their businesses and how have, how has COVID specifically adjusted their strategy. I think if I were to be interviewing them today, I would use COVID as an example of a shock, Mm -hmm. an unanticipated shock to the system, the human system, the social system, the business system. And I think I would have said, given that COVID has occurred and it's possible that additional shocks might come, how are you future-proofing your organization, your business to manage shocks. And I think that's because ideally we have steady state. Things are flat, meaning there's no risk, no surprises. Um, But the reality is, is that there are. And I think good leaders are able to manage and operate their organization when things are at steady state but they are able to adapt and change and address when there are big shocks. So I think it's a, the question Maurice is, it would be not just about COVID, but about thoughtful um, shock proofing or shock adjusting um, businesses and organizations. Cause I think more will come. If you, if you would have um, interviewed uh, chief sustainability officers from non-for-profit companies, would that have made a difference for the book? I intentionally chose for-profit companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reason for that was oftentimes businesses are um, pointed to as the problem mm-hmm. on social issues and environmental issues and not um, expected to actually do any good only profit. So I wanted to highlight um, for-profit companies that are doing something big and impactful and ideally replicable. If I had interviewed nonprofits, um, I needed, I think the questions would have been different. Mm -hmm. The questions would have been much more focused on um, how are they partnering with businesses to change businesses? the reason is there are few nonprofits out there that have the scope and size of some of the largest businesses in the world. I would ask the nonprofits, how are you an amplifier? How are you a multiplier? Mm-hmm. How are you catalyzing change beyond your organization and your immediate um, members or constituents and stakeholders? Um, you know, for me, I love. Um, coming to speak on your podcast because I know I'm going to reach thousands of people. I consider this an opportunity to teach and to be an amplifier. Um, I'm lucky enough to be able to teach uh, guest classes at universities. To me, reaching students is an opportunity to 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 be an amplifier. Um, and when I speak to a thousand people at a keynote conference. Um, on sustainability, on leadership, on change, it's an opportunity to amplify and to reach many people. So coming back to your core question, Maurice, I think nonprofits are important. I think nonprofits do great work. And my questions would be is, how through your sustainability strategies, are you truly amplifying and creating greater impact? I, I, uh, no, thanks for that, Krista. Uh, and um, let us, I, I would like to go back to a comment you made in terms of um, ESG and and how it, you know, sometimes is is um, linked with greenwashing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess it has to do with ultimately the leadership. Uh, right so are you really behind esg or do you see it one of the the things that you have to tick you have to do because you know that's what you need to do now so so um um so how does this the chief sustainability officer deal with with that you know how do you find out that 
you know, that your colleagues, the company, the board is really serious about about that. Have you, you know, come across I that? I do. I have yeah. personally come across it in my work, mm -hmm. um, you know, in my various roles across many companies. And and I talk to my clients about the same issue and mm -hmm. um, I, I see it. So I think there are two questions, Maurice, when it comes to sustainability and ESG. I think there's the why should you do it? Mm -hmm. And then there's the how to do it. I think the why questions are um, why climate change matters, why society needs us to focus on this issue. The reality is, is that as individuals, we all have different answers to the why questions. Why you care about something, whether cleaning up your local park or volunteering at your local food bank, your why is different. And for me, as a sustainability officer or as a leader, it's hard to answer 10,000 people's individual whys. I say that because I think where the real question is, is the how. And I say the how is, I'm going to work on the how. I'm going to change the way that businesses operate in order to create more value, in order to make customers happier in order to um, de-risk and make the supply chain more resilient. Mm -hmm. Because doing all of that through the how work will answer people's whys. Eventually their hearts will follow, which is I think what ideally we all want. Everyone's heart is in the right place and everyone is always thinking about society and the environment, but the reality is they're not. Mm -hmm. They all have individual heart and mind reasons to motivate. But if we talk about the how, we then eventually can answer the why and get them to be engaged. So I, 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 I don't think you and any leader can always get to a place where everyone is saying yes because they are truly passionate. I actually think it's okay for an organization to start with, let's check the box, let's do the minimum items required. Because by going through those minimum requirements, those exercises to have better governance, to make sure the right policies are in place, that child labor is not being used, for example, that we have mitigated environmental risk at our plants, mm -hmm. they'll start seeing, ah, this is better for everybody. This is better for the business. And then they will start engaging in the bigger why questions. So Let's get everybody to have a minimum standard, meaning let's let's raise everybody to the minimum expectations of ESG, and then let's get them to be more ambitious around changing the world for the better. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Lisa. I, I would like to make a jump. I, you know, my listeners know that I'm very passionate about sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not perfect, but at least as a world, you know, we have identified 17 goals that we should aspire uh, to you know, try to reach to make this world more sustainable. That's right. Um, however, I mean, the, I think uh, two weeks ago, a new report came out. We are, you know, we are falling behind. Mm -hmm. um, now, there is a growing group of people in the world that says, you know, one of the reasons... Um, you know, outside of, you know, COVID and, and war. But one of the reasons why we are not uh, reaching those goals is that we did not pay or we are not paying proper attention to the skills, abilities and knowledge that you need as individuals and as community. As a result, they did a survey and they came up ultimately with five inner development goals. Mm -hmm. um, being, thinking, relating, collaborating and action. So my question to you is, what do you think about that? You know, that that outside of, you know, a focus on changing systems and processes, we need to pay proper attention to, you know, the I perspective and the we as well. You know, how do I feel myself? What do I think? What do I want? What type of ancestor do I want to be? And we. Um, and how does that relate maybe then also with, you know, the ESG work and sustainability work? You know, I do think that the sustainable development goals are um, an incredible framework 
Um, and then the IDGs are incredibly important to support them. In some ways, I wish that UN SDG 17 had been expanded to include the IDGs, you know, and the timing was a little bit different. Obviously, the IDGs came a little bit later, um, but included them in it. Um, for, for your listeners who aren't familiar, um, UN Sustainable Development Goal number 17 is about partnerships. Mm -hmm. And it's about strengthening partnerships in order to support the other 16 sustainable development goals. One of the pillars that you mentioned in, the, in your book as well, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Partnerships yeah. is so, so important. Um, you know, UN SDG talks about equitable trade. It talks about policies um, being stable, um, making sure that there's uh, macroeconomic stability, um, you know, respecting the policy space of particularly developing and emerging markets. So, and the IDGs, which focus on individual leadership, essentially, those five pillars essentially are, how do you act? How do you mm -hmm. act in order to support UN SDG 17, as well as one through 16? Mm -hmm. So I do think that those are critical. Um, I do think that fundamentally what we're asking people to do is, is, is grow as individuals through the IDGs. You're, you need to have some sort of self-awareness about your leadership skills and self-awareness that how you're leading is not resulting in the outcomes that you expected in order to want to change. So I think in even raising it here in this podcast with you, Maurice, I think it's a question for, for listeners, which is, what am I doing today that isn't as effective in creating a partnership, in creating a positive outcome? And can I turn to the IDGs as a framework to say, this is how I could do it differently. This is how I could be better as an individual and as a leader in this um, society. Lisa. Um, I, I would like to jump back to your book and, and pick up one of the five principles, or sure. five Bs. Yeah. Um, invest in patience. Yeah. I get that. But I can also imagine that there are people out there is, yeah, I understand that maybe, you know, everybody goes with their own pace. But there is an urgency. You know, you look at this, as, as we just talked about, you know, the 17 sustainable development goals, we are not reaching them. Um, you know, uh, already we are on both on the East Coast. I think, you know, um, now for the last couple of weeks, we are in a situation where we are advised not to go outside because of the air quality. Um, that, that we cannot be patient. We need to push. What, how, how do you see that? So it's funny, Maurice, that you picked up on that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the five pillars being priorities and products, um, processes and partners, um, and patience. Um, I, I struggled, I have to admit with the word patience because patience is, is meant to convey that the results of your work take time to show fruition and you need to um, set expectations with your non-sustainability peers that it's going to take time for the outcomes, the results, the profitability, the excited customer response to come out. I must admit, Maurice, I think as I've reflected now over the last you know year of writing the book and the book being mm -hmm. your about, I might actually change that fifth pillar mm -hmm. to another P. Perhaps it's pilots, and maybe you and I can brainstorm on it, and I welcome your listeners' ideas as well, which is it's not about being patient and not doing anything. What it is, is perhaps piloting incessantly. Don't stop. You need to figure out what works for every single type of customer segment, and you need to figure out what it means for every type of internal partner. So piloting something with the accounting department might be different than what it means for piloting something with the sales department. It might mean something different to pilot it with an industry association, but you got to keep moving. You got to keep moving forward. This is not about being patient and not doing anything. 
Um, it's about having sophisticated pilots that test and push things forward instead of waiting for one big, perfect solution to come along in 10 years. Hmm. So I'm glad you picked up on that yeah, one. Yeah. What I, word, what, can I, I ask you what, what? Yeah, I, I just, yes. What I, I word about, would you use instead? Yes, I, I used, I, I was thinking about this and just now as well. And, and because it relates for me, I mean, I really like the fact that, um, you know, this group, of folks came up with the inner development goals. So when I see, whenever I talk about it, people get it because you need to, okay, there is there is a group of people out there that saying, you know, it doesn't, what you are doing as a person is, it doesn't make a difference. It's the big industries that need to, I get the big picture, but at the end of the day, I also believe in the power of one, you know, and change starts with yourself. So when, you know, I think about, what type of world do I would like to see for my children and my grandchildren? It starts with what do I do myself in my own household? So for me, it is make it personal, mm. you know, the P of personal. And and uh, because if people see that, the link of their business, that what they do in their work is related with who they are and what type of life they live and what type they type of world they want to leave behind for you know, what th again, the question is, what type of ancestor do you want to be? Mm -hmm. um, so you have to make it personal. So that's that's my quick. Um, no, it's great. I so I so it's it, continuing on this line of thought. So the personal mm -hmm. is. Is sort of the um, when I think about partners, right, when I think mm -hmm. about how do you convince an internal partner in particular, you do need to make it personal. What yeah. are they what are they caring about? Um, you know, how, what, what gets them out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, but I love the idea of elevating it to one of the five pillars. Um, I'll do some more thinking about it. That's a great yeah. suggestion. I, I, you know, the list, listeners might remind a podcast that I did with John Spodek, um, who lives in New York, who, um, decided to go off the grid. Um, so, you know, depends on how much you know how much sun was shining you know that's how many emails he can send um so so um and he works he's a he's a coach and he works with ceos as well and uh, basically his point is you know if if you don't walk the talk you know how how can you be the leader that you need to be so yeah that that's how i one of the reasons why i i came up with that uh, personal I um I would like to go to the which I call kind of the second part of our conversation, which goes a little bit fast, um, almost like rapid fire. Um, there are a couple of questions that I would like to ask you that are related with the hundred mile walk that I started in 2012. This podcast is a spin-off of of that walk. So um if we can go there, that that uh, that would be great. Um so my first question is, you know. Uh, you know that uh, I walked 100 miles in five to seven days to raise awareness about hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, for which cause would you do it and why? I really thought about this question because there are many issues, unfortunately, that deserve 100-mile walks and 1,000-mile walks. Um, but the issue in particular that I'm passionate about is um, affordable, if not free, childcare. Mm. Um, and that includes from birth to kindergarten, first grade, depending on your school system, mm. um, as well as aftercare, meaning when school ends at 3 o'clock, 3.15, um, and parents are trying to figure out that they still need to work another three hours or seven hours, um, where are their children going to be? I'm passionate about this because, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, growing up in Boston, um, my sister and I were latchkey kids. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much that's done these days, but, you know, my mom was working, um, I bet my dad returned back to Greece and we were, um, my sister and I were home alone in our apartment building. Now I was mm -hmm. 10, 11, 12, older, 10, 11, 12, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, but you know, my mom did worry about us and she was working. Um, and I think that for families that, um, 
you know, don't have affordable childcare, children are left in, in unsafe mm -hmm. conditions, they're left with siblings that are even younger. Um, and I think that um, having children um, that are in a place that's safe, um, mm -hmm. that's affordable, if not free, will take a huge weight off of parents' minds, in particularly mothers' minds, mm -hmm. um, and make them be able to be able to be better parents when they are home, um, and certainly better employees when they're in the office or at the factory or in the restaurant. Um, so I think affordable, if not free childcare, uh, if not in the U.S., but globally would be an incredible thing. And I would walk many miles for that. Um, thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah, if, if, um, no, let, let me, you know, when, when I walk, um, and I call them co-walkers, you know, we talk about a life and, and, um, it's, it's really strange because very often um, when you walk, you, you start thinking about life. You know, why are we here? And 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 with my co-workers, I often talk about religion and spirituality. And then, you know, oddly enough, very often also about what is the youth doing? How is How are they relating to religion and spirituality? And we see changes. Some people say, well, they are still spiritual, but not religious anymore. Others say, well, no, that's not true. But, you know, the institutionalization looks just different. What, what do you see happening among youth in your community around uh, religion and spirituality? I think I think there's definitely a shift, certainly a shift from when I was growing up um, uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, you know, I do think that there has been uh, a decrease in certainly a decrease in the organized religion um, among certain communities, right? I think some mm -hmm. faiths still have very strong communities, um, but I do see it decreasing. Um, you know, I think that what I see among youth is that there hasn't been a replacement for that centralizing force of the church, or I can't speak for other religions as I'm, as I'm, I, I want to be thoughtful about speaking on behalf of other religions, but um, I think there has been a decrease. I think in terms of spirituality, I think there is searching. I don't know that, frankly, youth are more spiritual. I think there is a searching, and I think the searching for spirituality is a searching for community. And I think that community is being sought out through social media, but it's not the same. It's not the equivalent replacement. Um, so I actually think, Maurice, that um, there is there is a decrease in religion and spirituality um, and that there is an increase in the search, but there hasn't been a replacement found. Let, let us piggyback a little bit on community. Mm -hmm. So so I try with it. I hope that with this podcast, I'm, you know, helping facilitating to connect people, you know, sure. Um so one way of, of doing this, you know, outside of having different guests and showing the different perspectives um, is that I always ask my guests to come up with a question for the next guest. So um, your question of the previous guest mm -hmm. is the following. Given the nature of AI and the ongoing discussions around it, my question for your next guest would be, how do you believe artificial intelligence and technology can be leveraged to make the most significant positive impact in your field of expertise? And what safeguards do you think are necessary to ensure these technologies are used ethically? I have been following the space around artificial intelligence and in particular around sustainability now for, for, for a while, doing my own tests about uh, can AI, for example, generate a sustainability strategy um, mm -hmm. for you? Um, I actually think we're using AI wrong. Um, we're turning to AI for answers, right? How do I write a sustainability strategy or write me a speech? I actually think we should be asking questions of AI, meaning what should what else should I be aware of when it comes to environmental risk when I think about sustainability? What questions are still open around the issues around um, reducing um, uh, child trafficking, for example, 
you know, what are the questions that we should be exploring in order to be able to have more sophisticated strategies that we as humans develop and fill in the blank. So I think, so I think AI is good actually, but I think we're not using it actually to its full potential to help us, us come up with the answers rather than asking AI for the answers. Um, you know, I think the safeguards are going to be challenging because AI depends on its inputs. So I think we actually need to, it's less about the safeguards around AI use, and it's more about what inputs is AI using and what, what, how are they using those inputs? So can they alter the future? What I mean by that is more specifically, Maurice, can they alter the past in order to influence the future. Can a picture of uh, an atrocity, um, a genocide, for example, be altered to change how people perceive that atrocity in the future? Um, my answer is no. So I think those are critical safeguards is how are the inputs managed and then how can those inputs be manipulated is gonna be critical. Okay, thank you for that. And, and um... Yeah, you might find it interesting that the question I just asked um, is from the previous guest, and the previous guest is ChatGPT, actually. So the episode, really, that, yeah, is is um, you know, that the listeners now already know if they you know follow all the episodes was with ChatGPT. So um, definitely check check out that episode if you haven't oh. done so. So uh, yeah, so uh, your question for the next guest. So my question for the next guest is, um, who is the one person in your professional network whose opinion you want to change? Why and how are you going to do it? And they don't have to reveal the name of the person, but I think Going back to your comment, Maurice, about the IDGs, right? And about one person having an impact. I truly believe in that as well. So you start with one person. Who is that one person who you think is so important that they understand your work or your mission or your, your drive or your project who doesn't believe in it today? How would you engage with them to change their mind? question beautiful question um if i would ask you to mention a song that embodies mm -hmm. uh, or a song or a, or a piece of music that embodies for a big part what you are about which piece of music or song would that be and why so it's a very simple song um it's by an american band called tom petty and the heartbreakers mm -hmm. um, and it's called wildflowers very simple lyrics, but basically starts with you belong among the wildflowers. And that song I really enjoy because I think it reminds me that we need to unplug, we need to rejuvenate, we need to rest. And I think for people who are change makers, people who are um, striving for a better society, we often get tired, we often get burnt out. And um, it's a good reminder for me, and I, I hope a reminder for listeners who may be change makers that um, that rest is needed as well as um, striving and fighting and challenging and changing. Thank you, thank you. Um, Steve Hartman of CBS um, at the moment um, examines how one simple act of kindness uh, creates a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. um, so if I ask you to come up with one simple act of kindness you know for this week um yeah what would what would that be what would you do it's an interesting question because um it goes back to that amplification right how do you amplify mm -hmm. how do you create change um so the one act of kindness is actually to reach out to a friend mm -hmm. um who i think is okay right mm -hmm. who's moving along, yeah. but actually might be lonely and having a hard time. They're coping well, they're doing fine. There's no big issue, but, um, but I know that they are having a challenge. Um, 
Sometimes we need someone to unexpectedly help us um, in order to, to feel better. So reaching out to a, a friend in need. Um, well, these conversations always go fast. So um, my last question to you is, you know, should, the, should I have asked you a certain question that I didn't? So. I think the question is, um, is my book only for chief sustainability officers? And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually meant for anybody who is interested in figuring out how to be a better leader mm -hmm. in a complex field because that's what these CSOs are doing, leading in a complex shifting field with a lot of individual and commercial and public stakeholders. Um, so that is that is the lesson there, is that complexity um, is, is something we can learn from and we can learn from the stories of these individual leaders. Yeah. No, and and I I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. So, so I really would encourage people to to check out your book um which you know is available on kindle as well as normal you know hardcovers yeah uh, that's right and and i also i don't know um if that's possible but you ha also have a book club very often book yes club sessions, i do uh, i do where you discuss certain chapters and that's really worthwhile i also participated in one and, and found it very useful to listen to you and to listen to the other participants so um, is there a website that, that uh, people you know can sign up for for the yes. book club? Thank you, Maurice. Yes, the book club is a great way for us to come together as a community and take mm -hmm. away lessons learned. The website is www.csosatwork.com. Csosatwork.com. Okay, and we'll and make sure take, to yep. to put it in the in the in the podcast notes as well. So thank uh, you. People can find it there. Thank you so much, much, uh, Lisa, and and you know for talking with me today for everything you do. Yeah, good luck. Thank you so much, Maurice. It was a real pleasure to be here today. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.